We read scripture from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We read the chapter. Our text is the first six verses, which I won't reread. We hear the inspired word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning or plating of the hair and or and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our... Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we look at the role of the wife and her calling to submit to her husband. Peter in this history has been dealing with the necessity to submit for God's sake. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, he stated in verse 13. The emphasis, first of all, on earthly leaders as kings, masters, lords. And then he proceeded to address the importance of servants submitting to their lords, their masters, as we applied that to the realm of employment. Now Peter turns to the home, and he begins with words of encouragement for wives. Wives, God has placed you in a position of subjection. 
Your subjection, however, is different from the others that have been laid out at the conclusion of chapter 2. You're in a relationship of intimate love. And where love prevails, the home will be blessed. Your subjection is not only to Christ, but to a loving husband, which makes submission then a joy, a delight. But the apostle poses here in our text a situation where the husband is not a believer. He's a heathen. What then? Where the husband is an unbeliever, is there a difference? And that's the question that would rise in our minds as well as in the minds of the saints of that day. No. No difference. That's striking. The apostle does not advocate advocate for divorce or separation, nor does he elevate the wife in that situation and say, but the wife in this situation, because she's a believer then, would not have to be subject to her unbelieving husband. After all, she's a Christian. That's not what he states. If any would have occasion to cast off the authority of their husbands, it would be one who is married to an ungodly man. But Peter specifically addresses them first and upholds the marital relationship as God ordained it. The deepest reason for subjection to their husbands is to serve Christ, their Lord and Master. As is true of all of submission, we see God's hand behind those whom God places in our lives. And we submit for God's sake. I love God. I know what great things God has done for me. I know the wonder of His hand in my life. And therefore, out of love for Him, I submit myself to those whom He places on my pathway to whom He requires that submission. It matters not how they conduct themselves. They may be evil. They may be ungodly. But that doesn't take away from me my calling. Now, Peter here is not admonishing or reprimanding wives. Rather, he's telling them, continue what you've been doing and be faithful. The words of this text, therefore, are filled with encouragement for wives. And we want to see this evening that God has something glorious something noble, something dignified that he requires of the godly wife. In our day and age, more than ever before, women and wives need this encouragement. The godly wife, who is a true pilgrim, she's a stranger, shows her godliness and shows her witness to the world by her attitude in the home toward her husband. Loving submission for God's sake. We take as our theme, noting, first of all, the meaning, secondly, the manner, and finally, the fruit. What does it mean to submit for God's sake? The apostle says, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, we know love stands at the heart of the marriage relationship, not a sappy, romantic love that one falls in and out of, but a deliberate, wondrous love, the love of God. The love by which God gave of himself for us. A power by which he took us and drew us to himself in fellowship and communion. And the wonder of that love is such that Jehovah God works that love in the hearts of men and women. And for the husband, this love shows itself then in the husband loving his wife enough to die for her. In the wife, this love shows itself as a power by which it moves her to love her husband enough to live for him. And the submission of the wife flows from and responds to that love of the husband toward her. Where the husband fails to walk in love, he makes submission a struggle for the wife. Where the husband faithfully loves, he makes that submission a joy. It's often emphasized, and that rightly, that The love of the husband is first and primary. And if we take the example that God gives us, Christ and his church, it's the love of Christ for the church that moves the church to respond in loving submission to Christ. For that reason, often we struggle with the order that the apostle gives here. He speaks of the wife and her calling first in the first six verses, and then in verse 7 gets to the responsibility of the husband's. 
And often the temptation is to preach them backwards. But we submit to the order of the apostle as we proceed here through this book. Wives, be in subjection. Be in subjection even when your husband himself does not obey the word. This is about your walk with God. This is about your love for God. That's what's on the foreground. Now God sets subjection as his will for wives. Our society and many even in the church despise this word of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, our natures revolt against it. We don't want to have to submit to others. We desire to be Lord. And it's especially the word submit that can carry many negative connotations, degrading, abusive, the idea of two not being equal, the idea of something being demeaning. On the one hand, there are those who write this off. This was ancient culture, ancient history. On the other hand, there are those who abuse this, men who take hold of passages like this, and who now make this into sinful tyranny to lord it over their wives and to control their wives for their own pleasure and for their own enjoyment. We look at what the scripture requires here. God's will for the wife clearly is set forth in the Bible. This isn't the will of man. This isn't merely my opinion. We look at the various passages from the scriptures briefly that address the calling of the wife. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ephesians 5, verse 33. The wife see that she reverence her husband. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Verse 6 here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 states that the head of the woman is the man. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 states that the woman should not usurp authority over the man. In Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, he addresses admonitions toward the young women admonishing that the young women should love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. One cannot read the Bible in any other way than to understand the position of the wife in marriage as that which is in subjection to the headship of her husband. This is her calling for God's sake. God is to be glorified in all that we do. And this is how the wife glorifies her father in heaven. God says, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, verse 2. We're not to conform to the ways of the world and their attitudes toward marriage. Rather, we transform our thoughts to be in subjection to the word of God. Now, the concept of submission involves conscious activity of the mind and of the heart. It's part of the wonderful, profound witness of the Christian to the world of the power of God's grace. What is God able to do in the heart and life of a person? God is able to work such a wonder that that one is willing to subject himself or herself, to the authority that God places in his or her life. The submission of the church is good and beautiful, and therefore now as compared to the church, this submission is good and beautiful. It's a matter of the heart. The word submit means to place oneself under, to defer to, to come under the will of another. And the reference always is to the will of God, ultimately. We submit to God. We submit to his will. And submission is the grace by which we bow our knee to Jehovah, our Lord, our Savior. Now of ourselves, we would never be inclined to do so. In 2 Peter 2 verse 10, we are presumptuous, self-willed. 
Not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. That's our nature. Our nature rises up. Our nature speaks evil of those who are in authority. We're not willing to submit. We're rebels. And as rebels, we place ourselves on the throne. We want others to look up to us. We will do what we want, not what God desires of us. Against that, we do battle. And within marriage now, God commands husbands to function as spiritual heads in the home. Verse 7 addresses that calling, that they're to dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Both husband and wife are vessels. They're clay pots. They're fragile. They have no value in themselves. Their value is from the Lord. And Jehovah God places husbands now as heads over the home. That headship is a headship of responsibility. Husbands are called to make decisions in the home for the glory and honor of God. The husband, the father, stands before God with that weighty responsibility, a daunting calling. Lead your home according to God's will and seek God's glory in all the decisions that are made in that home. The wife is called to submit to that leadership. Now, there can't be two heads in a home. Such is going to result in all kinds of confusion and trouble. And we know that from experience. Perhaps you experienced it in your home, or perhaps you went to a friend's house and you saw concretely what happens when the father and the mother were on different pages. And the kids, very effectively, would work the two against one another. They would find out what mom would allow, find out what dad would put up with, and they would try to use them against one another. That doesn't give God glory. That's not serving the Lord. Husbands and wives are one, and God requires of them to work together as one. And so in the home, all kinds of decisions must be made. All kinds of things must be confronted. Discipline needs to be administered. And so the husband and wife need to talk about this. How are we going to administer discipline? What do we believe is the biblical manner in which we take up the treatment of disciplining our children? And as they talk about it, and as they wrestle with Scripture and various applications, finally a decision needs to be made. And the husband needs to make that decision. This is how we're going to discipline in the home. And the wife submits to that decision. Schooling is needed for the children. God calls the husband to evaluate the situation, make a decision for the good of the family. Husbands value the insight of their godly wives. Appreciate the benefit of being able to discuss matters with their wife. But finally, again, a decision needs to be made. And the husband leads his wife, he leads his family by making that decision which he believes and is in accordance with God's will. Decisions need to be made about finances, about housing, about clothing, about everything. The godly husband leads in love. And the wife earns his trust by discussing these matters, submitting, so that together as a team they go forward within the home. Good communication, crucial. Confessing sin, forgiving one another as needed. Going forward as one. Now where a husband refuses to make decisions, refuses to lead his home, there's going to be trouble. Where a wife is constantly finding fault with a husband, contradicting her husband, there's going to be trouble. Submission does not involve a lack of freedom. That's the temptation to think. When is a train more free? Even you children have read these books about the engine that jumps off the track and thinks that he would be more free if he can run through the forest and run around through the hills and over the, through the field. Is that engine free when it's off the tracks? No. Freedom involves being on the tracks. Freedom involves doing what one has been made to do. And for an engine of a train to stay on the tracks. To be restricted to the train track then is not bondage for the engine. That's freedom. And the same thing can be said about birds in the air, about fish in the water. Restricting and confining means freedom. 
What is freedom? Freedom is getting on the right track. Submission is the right track that God has created for the wife. And while on the track of submission, the wife is free. Submission means that we make our will by God's grace and our abilities serve the purpose that God has ordained for us in life. It's a grace that God gives to his children. And it's the grace that we all seek after as our desire is to maintain that way that's in accordance with God's will. As wives, we reflect that spirit that we desire to see in our children. We desire to see our children submit to their parents in love. We impress upon their children the importance of obedience. And as wives now, we reflect that. We model that in our relationship to our husbands. Now that submission is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. God moves us to prayer. God teaches us our complete dependence upon His grace and upon His mercy. And this submission is the grace by which we are liberated from the bondage of self and we're made free to serve and follow after God and His will. The power of grace in the heart and life of the child of God is that you are free. You are freed from self and from bondage to self. And you are free to submit, free to serve, free to follow. Not my will, but thy will be done. God calls wives to submit. In your heart, with a desire to serve and love God, you realize that God places you in a position where he requires of you that you come under the husband whom he has given you. The husband whom he has appointed as your spiritual leader. This is not demeaning. This is honorable. This belongs to the calling of every Christian in one way or another. Where your husband requires of you to sin, you cannot and may not obey. We obey God rather than men. You submit to the consequences... And you leave the outcome to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ humbled himself and placed himself under the will of his heavenly Father. He laid aside his own rights in order to come into this world to be born of a woman and to take upon himself the curse due to us. Submission, then, is not that a woman is inferior to her husband. Jesus was not inferior to Joseph, and to Mary once he became their child. He remained creator. He remained their God, their Savior. But he was subject. And that subjection did not take away any of the dignity that God gave to him. Submission does not make one inferior. It's simply part of the way that God has ordained for the society and the home to reflect his glory. And rather than taking away from the woman her status or robbing her of her glory, this submission is precisely her glory. This is her beauty, according to the apostle. What was Christ's confession? I delight to do thy will, O my God. Psalm 40, verse 8. Christ works in us forgiveness for our self-seeking. And he works in our hearts this desire, this delight. He dwells in us by his spirit. And by that spirit, works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. God takes two individuals and God makes them one flesh. Working a spiritual headship in the heart of the man and a spiritual submission in the heart of the woman. Now, due to sin, there's always going to be struggles because that relationship is in the realm of sin. And due to sin, constantly, we need to be asking for forgiveness. We need to be forgiving one another. We need to be repenting. Due to sin, we need to be constantly evaluating our walk and our attitude. Now, what does it mean, then, for the wife to be Christ-like? She submits to God and to His will. Seeking not her own things, but the things that will benefit Christ. And she shows this in her interaction with an attitude toward her husband. The apostle here strikingly references holy women of old. 
For after this manner, verse 5, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. They were not holy in themselves, but Jehovah God had chosen them. He made them saints. And that's exactly what Peter's been talking about. You who were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who have been born again, not of corruptible seed, you are holy. And be ye holy in all manner of conversation. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who you are. You are those whom God has called to himself, whom he has made holy. And what does that mean? He's separated you from sin, and he's consecrated you to himself. He's made it so that you desire to live unto God and that you hate sin and you flee from sin. Such is the power of the gospel. Christ draws sinners to himself and he works in them repentance and true sorrow and he causes them to be in union with himself. Now what does it mean that the church submits to Christ? We can understand a couple things regarding that that assist us in our marriages. First of all, she sees herself serving and advancing the cause of Christ. And she spends herself in that cause. The church studies the Bible. The church desires to know, what would my master desire of me? What is my master's will? And she seeks to devote herself to the purpose of the truth. And secondly, the church finds great joy in proclaiming the honor of Jesus Christ. The Psalms again and again talk about that, especially in Psalm 45. The church, the bride of Christ, makes known the majesty of her master and of her Lord, delighting in and extolling in the Lord her master, so that she advances the cause of Christ and she honors Christ. The wife is called to be subject to her husband as the church is to Christ. That is, she advances the cause of her husband She gives herself to that cause. There's one flesh. And as one flesh, they live one life. And rather than living separate lives, pursuing separate goals, she's living unto him. And that means she's following her husband's spiritual leadership. She desires him and his purpose in life to be carried out in and through her. She delights in seeing him prosper in the gifts that God has given The wife says, I will give myself to serve you and to advance your calling. The wife doesn't say, I want my interests. I want my career. I want my life. She says, I want to use my time. I want to use my gifts, my energy, my talents for the good of our marriage and for your good. And so the wife says, I will be your aid. I will be your helper, suited to assist you, your counselor, The one to help you devote your gifts as a son of God to the calling that God has given you. The wife committing herself to assisting her husband be the most godly man that he can be. And the wife doesn't undermine or speak evil of her husband. She honors him. She says, I'm going to give myself to advance your purposes and your honor. The man and the woman are one flesh. And they pursue one goal together, supporting one another in love. The headship of the husband, the loving submission of the wife. Now how is that to be carried out? First of all, negatively, the apostle says, not by the adorning, outward adorning of the plating of hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Christian wife asks herself, how will I impress my husband? How will I endear myself to my husband? And the temptation is to think outwardly, that's the way that I'll do it. And the apostle says, no. The way to endear yourself to your husband is to work on your heart. Don't work on your outward appearance. Now God has blessed women with beauty. In no way is Peter undermining the natural beauty of the woman. Scripture abounds with expressions of the beauty of the bride and how the bride prepares and adorns herself for her husband 
making herself attractive and making herself lovely. Peter's not laying out outward laws or rules here with regard to how women are to dress or how they're not to dress. His teaching simply is this. The true beauty of the wife is the adorning of that inner heart, that inner spirit. And so this is what she needs to focus on in order to love God and to love her husband. Now, outward looks can be deceiving. And you young men especially need to be admonished regarding that. Proverbs often warns young men. Proverbs 6, verses 24 to 26. Keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Young men, look for true beauty in a woman. And that true beauty is not outward beauty. It's the beauty of a new regenerated heart. It's the evidence that that one is a child of God. That she knows the wonder of God's grace within her. That she is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That she lives in the consciousness of the wonder of that salvation. And that's going to be evident by her heart and her spirit. Now Peter talked about that again in chapters 1, chapter 2. We've been regenerated, not by a corruptible seed, but by that which is incorruptible. Outward beauty fades, it perishes. But that which is of the heart will endure to all eternity. And so verse 4 says, there's a beauty that's not corruptible. There's a beauty that will endure. Seek after that beauty. Positively, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. The apostle is emphasizing here the true beauty of the Christian woman. And it's that which is inside. And what's inside is going to show itself. It's going to reflect itself in her attitude, in her actions, and in her conduct. The Christian husband rejoices in that true beauty. The adorning is of the heart. A new heart that loves God, that esteems others above self. A new heart that shows itself transformed by the Spirit of God, willing to love her husband, to subject herself to him for God's sake. She forgives as she's been forgiven. She lives out of the spiritual graces of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are the traits that you as young men look for in a future wife. The true dress of the heart, a meek and quiet spirit. Not a critical, nagging, fault-finding spirit. The Bible's filled with warnings against sinful speech, sinful attitudes. And again, the book of Proverbs again and again about the brawling woman. The beauty of the woman is her kind loving speech that flows from a meek and quiet spirit. And that meek spirit is of great price. It costs the blood of God's own Son. Of the pagans, the world doesn't hold meekness in high regard. The Bible elevates meekness and calls it that which is pleasing to God, the fruit of God's grace. Meekness is the inner strength to submit before God and make oneself a servant to others. The meek individual is conscious of his or her sinfulness and humbles himself, herself before God. The meek person is not esteeming self, is not putting oneself first, but is content to be in the background. Matthew 5 verse 5 identifies the blessedness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does a woman with a meek spirit look like? She's gentle, mild, slow to temper. 
She's not vain, proud, self-asserting. She's not running around criticizing her husband, belittling him, discouraging him. Now, there are times when a husband dares hardly bring anything up to his wife for fear of her reaction. The flip side can be true. A wife dares not bring anything to her husband's attention for fear of his reaction. God condemns that spirit within a home. There's a meekness. There's a willingness to listen. There's a slowness to temper. And there's a prayer for the grace of Jehovah God to live in my heart so that I show my thankfulness for my spouse. And my spouse knows how thankful I am for him, for her, and for the place that God has given him or her, and for the grace that God has poured out in his love toward them. Meek and quiet go together. Loudness, irate speech, bursts of anger, that's condemned. Spiritual discipline keeps one quiet, meek. Now, that doesn't mean that sins aren't dealt with. It doesn't mean that concerns go unnoticed. But rather, we are called to deal with those sins in a matter that gives glory to God. A matter that reflects the power of God's grace in our lives and serves as an example to those around us, even to the wicked. That though they may speak against us as evildoers, they see by our good works which they shall behold evidence of God's work and His grace in our lives. The calling of the woman is to show her true beauty in the way of displaying the spiritual graces of a Christian. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. How practically will that be seen in the godly woman? First, your calling is to be good. To show your husband kindness. Proverbs 31 says of the virtuous woman that she will do good, not evil, to her husband all the days of her life. God in divine wisdom brings a man and a woman together for his glory. We bring sinful conflict into those marriages. And through our marital struggles, we're constantly looking to God. We're constantly confessing our sins. We're constantly trusting his will to guide us. We love God. We thank God for what he's done for us. We know the wonder of the love with which he's loved us. And we're thankful for his goodness and his mercy that fail never. We fail. We sin. We confess our sins. We cry out for mercy. And we pray for the grace to submit and to love for God's sake. Show appreciation to your husband for who God made him and for what he does. Show an interest in his problems and his struggles. Care for him by seeking to help him. Look not on your own things, but also on the things of others, as Philippians 2 requires. Give him good advice, suggestions. Don't be constantly cutting him down or pointing out faults. Show confidence in him, confidence in the decisions that he makes, and express gratitude for his leadership. Make your home a home of order, a place of refuge, a place of comfort. So that the godly wife is a housekeeper, a faithful disciplinarian to your children. So that your home is not a home filled with disorder and chaos, confusion and shambles, but a home of order. Be frugal, be diligent like the Proverbs 31 woman. She dedicated her whole life to providing for her husband and for her children. She's not out spending money on herself. She's not wasting the household finances. She's working with her husband. She's seeing to it that everything that's done is seeking the well-being of her family. Cooperate with your husband in the training, the rearing of the children instead of fighting against him. Be loyal to your husband. Defend him in front of the children and others, even when he doesn't deserve it, for God's sake. And then address his sins, address his shortcomings privately, prayerfully, in love. Maintain a diligent spirit of devotions. Is not that most important? In order for us to walk right in our marriages, we need to be walking right with God. A devotional and a prayer life so that daily I'm reminded of my calling before God. And I work on that inner beauty of meekness. 
I work on that attitude of forgiveness, long-sufferingness in my relationships. And we're honest in our dealings. We work hard to serve others, to find joy in service, not in selfish ends. And don't be covetous of other women. Don't be covetous of other husbands. The devil so quickly gets hold of us and works covetousness within us. Remember the 10th commandment applies to each of us. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's husband. God has given you your spouse. And you are called by God to love, to submit to that one for God's sake. And so, beloved, standing before God's word, we ask ourselves, am I living in submission to my husband? Am I seeking to be his helper? Am I walking in love toward my wife? And beloved, we cry out for mercy. Lord, forgive me. We repent of our sins, of our selfishness, and we seek grace, strength in our God. And the fruit of that is evident here, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. Is there trouble in your marriage? Are you finding yourselves at odds with your spouse? You're not talking so much anymore. And you wonder, how did that happen? One time we were all in love. The future looked so good, so happy. We wonder, how can things turn around? Now, beloved, there are many reasons for trouble in marriage, of course. Sometimes it's poor communication. We don't stay involved in one another's lives. And just like when we don't talk to God... We grow further and further apart. We don't share our goals. We don't share our concerns. We don't show appreciation for one another. We're not praying for one another. We don't listen well. And we draw apart from one another. Sometimes there's frustrations with money, with children, with intimacy. Sometimes there are religious differences. Sometimes it's selfishness, pride, jealousy, hatred get hold of us. But disobedience to God's will for marriage and a refusal to live in marriage in accordance with God's will is the most fundamental reason for trouble. And the reason then is with my spirit. My selfish spirit is the threat to my marriage. Where there is disobedience to God's word and unwillingness of a husband to lead his wife in love, unwillingness of a wife to submit to her husband in love, soon that marriage is on the rocks. And there's trouble. Marriages cannot survive with merely feelings of love. Obedience to God is more important than anything else. And as those who love God, who delight in God, who confess ourselves to be His children, we desire to show forth His praise. If any obey not the word, their marriage is going to be in trouble. And what's our calling in that situation? Obey the word. Submit to God's will. Seek after that which is good and pleasing in God's eyes. Now Peter addresses here the godly woman that she in the midst of such a situation is to show forth her obedience to that word. Her husband may not be obeying the word. He's not willing to be the godly leader that he's supposed to be. He's not being the spiritual head that he's called to be. So what is her recourse? The apostle says, You then be an example to him. Now we need to understand here the context. In Peter's day, the church was being gathered from the heathen, from the pagan. And the result was that it wasn't uncommon that one spouse would become a Christian and the other was not yet a Christian. That's what the apostle here is speaking of. In no way is he promoting unequal yokes. But the unbelieving husband then, for instance, where the woman was a believer, would interfere with the wife and interfere with her faithfulness, perhaps even restricting her attendance at church, causing trouble and grief in her life. Now the apostle's point is that does not give the wife license similarly to walk in disobedience to Christ. That's the temptation. If he's going to live selfishly, then I'm going to live selfishly. If he wants to hang out with friends and not come home for supper, then I'm not going to leave anything for him. 
If he's going to spend money so foolishly, well, then I'm going to spend money how I desire it. If he's going to say evil things about me, then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to badmouth him. So easy it is to fall prey to the devil's temptation. Now, while the wife must not be an enabler, it's not her job either to work vengeance. God will take care of that. She warns, she admonishes her sinning husband. She leaves the rest to God. And her calling is, according to the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is to be a witness by her conversation. That is, by her conduct. The fruit of godliness in your life as a godly wife must be so powerful that you see beyond your husband to God. And you see God's hand in your life and your calling before God. And you realize the wonder by which God, by His grace, has transformed you. And that same grace is able to transform your husband in God's time or your wife. So then even if you have a husband who's an unbeliever but's willing to stay living with you, your calling is to live with him faithfully according to Christ. And he will see the power of grace moving in you to do things that are inexplicable. Why would she respect me? Why would she honor me? Why would she stay with him? Why would she seek to be faithful to him? There's only one explanation. For God's sake. This is the will of my heavenly Father. And God may be pleased to use that godly example and that conduct to speak more powerfully than any words you can speak. That without the word here doesn't mean that you're not speaking. You're still bringing the word as you have opportunity. But the point is, your example means as much or more than any words you speak. Now, God does not promise the conversion of unbelieving husbands in every instance. He doesn't promise the conversion of unbelieving wives. But God does not allow for the wife to rise up above her husband in that situation. God doesn't say, you don't need to submit anymore. He doesn't say, you can go be separated. He says, watch your attitude. Watch your conduct. Walk in a manner that reflects God's love and God's will and do it for God's sake. They must see that what rules your life is the fear of God. And notice again that reference throughout the book. We've noted that again and again, that godly fear. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. They see that what rules your life is the fear of God, the honor of God, the reverence that you have toward God. That your life of submission is for God's sake. Now in that context, in verse 6, the apostle references Sarah and Abraham. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now this brings out an important point that the apostle also brings out in Ephesians 5 verse 22. That you submit to your own husband's as unto the Lord. Now there's a unique submission of a godly wife to her husband that's not fitting in her relationship to any other man. You're not called to submit to all men in the same way that you submit to your husband. Marriage is exclusive. And the husband and wife are in a relationship that they don't enjoy with anyone else. In that relationship, that submission is to be in everything. This means... Even when we don't desire, even when we don't feel like it. There may be times now we can't obey, as we always have to obey God rather than men. But even in those instances, there's still the calling to submit. And that submission must be evident. Perhaps it comes across in this manner. It grieves me when you walk in sin. And then you want me to go with you. You know I can't do that. I don't want to resist you. I want to joyfully follow you. But I can't follow you into sin as much as I love and honor your leadership. Or maybe the wife thinks the decision of her husband is foolish. And she says, I know you've thought long and hard about this. And I love it when you make decisions for the family. But I don't have peace with this. I think we need to pray about it. We need to work more diligently and talk about this. In your disagreements, you make clear still that you honor him in his role as your Lord. You make clear that once all the talking is finished, a decision needs to be made and you will submit for God's sake. 
Now notice what this doesn't say. This doesn't say that Abraham esteemed himself as Lord and demanded Sarah's subjection. Never does the Bible admonish husbands to subject your wife to yourself. And men, you will get nowhere trying to demand subjection of your wives. Love your wives. Explain the decisions that you make in connection with your love for them. And that submission will flow from God and from His grace. The wife is called to submit willingly. And submission is a gift that is given freely, willingly, and cheerfully. That's evident from that phrase that is difficult to understand in the end of verse 6. And are not afraid with any amazement. Literally, that means fearing not any fear. Don't be concerned about earthly threats. Don't be concerned about opposition from an unbelieving spouse. Trust the Lord who will take care of you. Walk in fear toward God who will give you grace to be faithful for His sake. Beloved, we're pilgrims. We're strangers. We're a peculiar people called to show forth the praise of God. And we're called to show that in our marriages. Others, by that, will see those good works that God has before ordained that we walk in. Your faith, your Christianity, means that you have one master. You have one Lord, and you're his servant. And for Christ's sake, you submit to those whom he places on your pathway in positions of headship. You submit to your husband for Christ's sake. Now Christ submitted perfectly for our sake. He's the one to whom we look for grace and strength, for forgiveness. How we need him in our marriages. He who took upon himself our sin and nailed it to the cross. We battle against those sinful natures. We sin. We give silent treatments. We keep records of faults. We refuse to forgive. We cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy and for grace and for forgiveness. And we trust. He is faithful. He who loved us from eternity is the one who will preserve and keep us to all eternity. We keep looking to Him as our Lord. And we pray for the grace to bring our marriages into subjection to the Lord's will. If you only look at your husband, you're going to see a sinner and all kinds of reasons to forsake him. If you only look at your husband, you're going to have a list of reasons why you don't need to submit to him. Your life will come down to ruin and pain. But you look at God. And you see God behind the ones whom He's placed in your life. He puts you together. He calls you now to walk in faithfulness to Him. And He will preserve and He will keep you by His grace. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. We are sinners. We are selfish. We make ruin of our relationships. We thank Thee for Jesus Christ who established that relationship that can never be broken. And as we look to Him, we pray that Thou will preserve and keep us in the love with which thou hast loved us from all eternity, and cause that that love might shine forth in our lives as a powerful witness to thy grace. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.